Good morning, everyone. Good to be here, despite the masks. I've got a break now. Oh. Right. If you've been here on either or both of the last two Sundays, you will have gathered uh, that during the Sundays in Advent, we're using Isaac Watts' popular hymn, Joy to the World, as a launching pad for our messages. It's loosely based on Psalm 98, and originally it had four verses, but most hymn books only give three. So today's verse is the last one, and it goes like this. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Part of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 98 goes like this, the Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now you notice what Isaac Watts has done. Firstly, the psalm is about Yahweh, the God of Israel. The hymn is about the Lord, the Lord Jesus. In other words, Watts has transposed the psalm into the language of the New Testament. He's Christianized it. Secondly, notice that the psalm begins by celebrating God's salvation of his people Israel. The nations are onlookers. They're learning about God from seeing how he has delivered his people. And thirdly, notice that the psalm goes on, well, it's not on the board, but if you had it in front of you, to call on the whole earth to shout for joy to the Lord, the King, because he's coming to judge the earth in righteousness, the peoples with equity. And that means that he will rule the world justly, rewarding the righteous, but punishing the wicked. Isaac Watts has taken words similar to those with which the psalmist describes God's salvation of Israel, and he uses them to describe Christ's rule of the world. It's the nations who are to experience the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. So, if we take our cue from the psalm, we're going to think, first of all, about Jesus as the saviour for the Jews, and then as the saviour for the nations. Okay? And so we begin with the words of the uh, angel Gabriel to Mary in Nazareth. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so a name that was very common amongst the Jews at that time, Yeshua, Jesus, a shortened form of the name Joshua, Yehoshua, which means Yahweh saves, is, given, is to be given to this baby. The angel similarly told Joseph that this name Jesus was chosen because he will save his people from their sins. And in the context, his people means the Jewish people. We, of course, can widen it out and say it includes us because we're now 
his people and he came to save us as well. But sticking with the original context, that narrower meaning is also confirmed as we listen to the words of the angel to the shepherds. They've already been read once today. In Bethlehem on the day that Jesus was born. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Again, the people referred to here are the Jewish people. Jesus was born as the Messiah, the anointed king of the Jews. And so when the Magi arrive in Jerusalem, they ask, where is the one born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Later on, John comments about the word who was God, and uh, was with God and was God. He came to his own, that is his, his own homeland, and his own people did not receive him. But of course, he goes on to say that some did receive him, and they became children of God. Then when Jesus began his ministry, he made it clear that his mission was primarily to the Jewish people. The number of Gentiles who experienced healing uh, during his ministry was very small. They're the exceptions that prove the rule, really. And when he sent the twelve apostles out on a mission, he said, do not go among the Gentiles. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then at the end, he was condemned by the Jewish Sanhedrin for claiming to be the Jewish Messiah and then he was crucified by the Romans with a placard over his head which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. I think I've made my case. So Jesus was born and died in the first instance as the King of the Jews, the Saviour of the Jews. And this is presumably why Paul, although he was called to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles, insisted that the gospel was firstly for the Jews and then for the Greeks. And why he always began his preaching in each place in a Jewish synagogue, if there was one. Then in those three very significant chapters in his letter to the Romans, chapters 9 to 11, Paul expresses his sorrow that the majority of the Jewish people have rejected their Messiah. But he looks forward to the day when they will turn to him. And in the meantime, he hopes that his preaching to the Gentiles will arouse his own people to envy, and that they will believe in Christ and be saved. Incidentally, in case we don't, don't totally understand, the English word Gentile is, is derived from a Latin word meaning family. But of course it's used to mean anyone who's not a Jew. In our Bibles, it's a bit confusing, um, it's used in the plural to translate the Greek word for nations, especially when there's a contrast with the Jewish people. So the Gentiles are the nations, not the Jews. And this time of Advent, when we celebrate uh, the birth of the Jewish Messiah, is a good time for us to think about mission to the Jews. Uh, when, when you sing that uh, song, uh, hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, uh, what do you think you're doing? I mean, what do we think we're doing? What do we think we're, we're asking? 
Are we putting ourselves back in the time of, of before the birth of Jesus and singing about the, the people of Israel longing for their Messiah, O come, O come, Emmanuel, uh, and ransom captive Israel? Or are we singing about the future, the second coming of the Lord, when he will come and they will turn to him? I don't know, I leave that to you to think about. Perhaps both things. <laughs> but it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful hymn, isn't it? A, a very old hymn, Come and Come, Emmanuel. But this is a good time for us to think about mission to the Jews and whether we are sufficiently thinking about this, whether we support them, uh, support these missions. There's a whole lot, a number of missions uh, specifically to Jew Jewish people worldwide. Um, and particularly, of course, um, Henk and Vilma, who apologise that they can't be here this morning. They'll be on, on uh, I hope they're on live stream watching. Um, they're in the office of the International Mission to Jewish People. But there are other missions as well. Are we praying for these missions, these missionaries who, who are taking the gospel specifically to the Jews, to the Jew first? Jesus was, is, is their Messiah. Are we supporting those missions? That's, that's the first challenge for us this morning. But now we move on to the second aspect. Jesus' saviour for the nations. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Okay, Jesus came in the first instance to save his own people from their sins, but here the whole thing is widened out. The words, he rules the world, remind us that the one who died on the cross in weakness, in apparent weakness and shame, the rejected Jewish Messiah was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, was given authority over both heaven and earth. So Paul, probably quoting an early Christian hymn, says, of the one who humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross, therefore God highly exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a Another place where Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When he writes to the Ephesians, he says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet. Now you may sense a, an apparent contradiction there. The heavenly enthronement of Christ means that all things are already under his rule and control, but until he returns to the earth to deal with all the opposition, uh, and spiritual opposition and human opposition, will that be eliminated and all things will be put under his feet. There's, uh, there's no contradiction there. In principle they're there, in, in reality they've not yet been uh, eliminated. And of course all these wonderful truths 
are vivid, vividly depicted in the book of the Revelation. I didn't know that was going to be read. Um, from chapter 5. You've got chapter 5, the lamb with the marks of slaughter on him. The only one found worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God, break its seals, bring the disasters upon the earth. And then in chapter 19, the word of God, who is the who's king of kings and lord of lords, comes riding on a white horse with all the armies of heaven to strike down the nations, to rule them with a rod of iron, to tread the winepress of the fury of, wrath of, of the wrath of God Almighty. Terrifying words. But that's not all that's in the book of the Revelation. It's not all judgment, is it? There's this wonderful passage, this, this vision uh, that, that John has in chapter 7. A great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We see then that uh, Isaac Watts doesn't focus on the judgment of the nations, as Psalm 98 does. He focuses on their salvation. He rules the world with truth and grace. I'm going to keep repeating this, because you go, go home and you'll remember this verse. And makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And so after the resurrection, Jesus makes it clear that his death was not just to save the Jewish people, his own people from their sins, but people from all nations. And Luke records that Jesus said, repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. It's a verse from Luke 24 that people don't often quote. The more, more obvious one is from Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. This is, this is the theme. I wonder what uh, Isaac Watts had in mind when he wrote those words, the wonders of his grace. Lovely phrase, isn't it? The wonders of his grace. Is he expressing his amazement uh, that the Son of God, the Holy Son of God, should so love a sinful, rebellious human race as to come and give himself on a cross? so that those who believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Because I do believe we can, as it were, rephrase John 3.16 and say, not only God so loved the world, but the Son of God so loved the world. Paul actually makes it personal, doesn't he? Paul says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just one out of the many nations. Or does... Does uh, Isaac Watts have in mind, with these words, the wonders of his love, the wonderful miraculous effects that happen in the lives of those whose hearts are flooded with the, with the love of Christ because they've been given his Holy Spirit. That's the wonders of his love. How many of us are displaying in our lives the wonders of God's love? Are people seeing the wonders of God's love? The wonderful things that happen when you open yourself, you open your heart to the love of God in Christ. I'm not even going to stop and comment on, on these other key terms that Watts uses. Truth, grace, righteousness. Wonderful words. What a lovely verse this is. 
Thank you very much for giving it to me, uh, Craig. <laughs> Except that I, I want to just emphasise one more thing before we go on to our, our last part. And that is that for Watts, the rule of Christ now means that this is the day of grace. This is the time when salvation, getting right with God, is still on offer to all mankind before that dreadful time of judgment comes. And is there anyone here this morning who hasn't taken the opportunity to get right with God now, during the daytime of grace? It's still open to for you to repent, to receive Jesus as your Saviour and your Lord. And you can prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And my final, my final section. We've got it up there again. <laughs> That's all right. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. I believe that this verse is really facing us with a challenge. How? How are the nations to prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love? Well, of course, the answer is, is clear and simple. We, who have experienced these things, have to go and tell others about the saving righteousness of Christ and how wonderful his love is. So Paul writes, how can they believe in the one of whom they, they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? And so the first apostles are told, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, to the nations. And we too are called to be witnesses in words and actions to the saving righteousness and wonderful love of the Lord Jesus, beginning where God has placed us now, but ready to go wherever in the world he wants to send us. Of course, the wonderful thing is you don't actually have to go abroad to reach the nations with, with the gospel, because the nations have come here. They're on our doorstep. They're living in our streets. And the, and the challenge for us is whether we're taking the opportunity that, that's offered to us of reaching people of all nations on our own doorstep, in our own land. Just to be a little bit personal, I haven't, worked, I haven't cleared this with my wife. Um, <laughs> at the beginning of our married life, Barbara and I seriously considered whether the Lord was calling, to serve, calling us to serve him abroad. Eventually, we came to the conclusion that he wanted us to remain in London and serve him there. But we always took an interest in what God was doing and God's servants were doing all over the world with information coming in regularly about missions uh, and not just the one mission that we <coughs> happened to support or the, the missionaries we happened to support. We, we were praying for, particularly Barbara does it, praying for a wide range of people uh, who are serving the Lord amongst the nations. And then later we took the opportunity to visit other countries, not just on holiday, <coughs> but to visit missionaries, to preach and to teach God's word. Europe, Africa, Asia. 
of course, it all became easier once our children were grown up and, uh, and then after we were retired from paid employment. It's very interesting. There's a book by John Piper uh, titled Let the Nations Be Glad. And in that, he calls on retired Christians to use the time and money that they now have, hopefully, to visit missionaries, to help and encourage them, even to live abroad for a while. And he describes the American dream of retirement, resting, playing, travelling, as the world's substitute for heaven, since they don't believe there will be one beyond the grave. Now, this is very challenging. Uh, I know I mean, not everybody here is retired yet, but you will be one day. Uh, and Piper goes on like this. The mindset is that we must reward ourselves in this life for the long years of labour. This is the worldly mindset. I've got to have a, a, an enjoyable retirement because I've worked so hard for it. Eternal rest and joy after death are irrelevant considerations. What a strange reward for a Christian to set his sights on. This is what Piper writes. Twenty years of leisure while living in the midst of the last days of infinite consequence for millions of unreached people. What a tragic way to finish the last lap before entering the presence of the king who finished his so differently. Then he quotes Ralph Winter who writes, Where in the Bible do they see retirement? Did Moses retire? Did Paul retire? Peter? John? Do military officers retire in the middle of war? Of course, he's not... He's talking about re re retirement from... Um, well, he's not talking about retirement from paid employment. He's talking about retirement from serving the Lord. Yeah. It's not on the agenda. It shouldn't be on our agenda. Retirement from serving the Lord. Now, no doubt, sitting there listening to me or listening to me quote John Piper, you can think of some replies to sort of answer these challenge. Uh, and, uh, well... I wouldn't brush them aside too, too quickly. But look, if we are retired, we should be asking God to show us if, they, if we should be using our retirement to further his mission to the nations. It may mean going abroad, it may mean staying at home and supporting missionaries by prayer and giving, but it is a deliberate use of our retirement time, energy and money. And if we're not yet retired, well, you will be one day. So now is the time to ask the Lord whether he wants you to serve him in some other place, in some other way. And if you're sure you're in the right place where, where the Lord wants you to be, are you actively supporting world mission by your prayers and by your giving? We seek to as a church. Are we doing it as individuals as well? And I believe that, you know, well before retirement, Christians need to determine that they will not waste the years that the Lord will grant them after paid employment finishes. Christ's mission to the nations is our mission. He is, he is the saviour of global mission. And the challenge for us this morning from this verse of, of, of Isaac Watts, which I think is wonderful, is this. Are we global Christians? Jesus is a global saviour. 
Are we global Christians? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you uh, for the wonderful truths that we've uh, briefly uh, summarized here this morning. Of your son coming into the world as the Jewish Messiah, first of all, and then as the saviour of the world. But handing over to, to us, to his people, the responsibility of taking that message, that, is, that good news, to all nations. Thank you, Lord, for, the, for those here uh, who are doing that in various ways. I just want to pray for... Uh, uh, our friends here, Jonathan and uh, Nancy, bless you. Henk and Vilma uh, at home. Uh, and others in the room, um, Ian and, and uh, Barry, and, and others in the room who are, who are, who are uh, and, and Emma. Uh, I must leave someone out, aren't I? Lord, but you know. But we will all want to be. We all need to be, not just a few who specialise, not just a few uh, who are particularly keen on world mission, but all of us, Lord, to be global Christians and to be open to listening to your voice. That you may be saying, who shall I send? Who will go for us? Ready to say, here am I, Lord. Send me. Amen.